Hi everyone, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome back to the Food Institute Podcast. Today, we welcome back Bill Bishop, good friend of the show and chief architect of Brick Meets Click, and we'll be taking a look at the grocery e-commerce landscape one year out from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and also at ways grocers will need to pivot and retain and obtain new customers in the years to come. But first, I'd like to thank everyone that's been listening to the podcast over the last year, and we ask that you share this episode with your friends and family. In addition to the Food Institute website, we're now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, so please subscribe, like, and share on your platform of choice as this really extends our reach, so thank you again. And with that said, I'll introduce Bill back to the show. How are you, Bill? Just fine. Good to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you back. And like I said at the start of the show, I'd like to quickly take a look at some recent e-commerce figures that Brick Meets Click published regarding March 2021. And in that report, you noted grocery e-commerce sales jumped 43% from March 2020 to $9.3 billion. So my question is, will this momentum last through the year? Or have we hit a saturation point as far as acquiring new users for grocery e-commerce? No, I don't think we've hit a saturation point as yet. Um, there's going to be variation in the numbers, uh, but certainly the income supplements that have been uh generated by the government are going to propel some of this spending at the same time with all the vaccinations you're going to see people being a little bit more willing to go to the grocery store and avoid the pickup or delivery but uh, i think we're marching very strongly in the direction of ever increasing growth in online with uh with that variation going up and down just a little bit with the sample and and what's happening to people at any given point. So I do have a follow-up question regarding, you know, increased vaccinations and people's shopping behavior. And I guess the question really comes down to this. How sticky are these changes? Are people going to continue using grocery pickup options now that they can be vaccinated? Or do you think that they'll revert back to in-store shopping if they can? I think we're going to see a hybrid model. Uh, People shopping online for pickup or delivery when that's most convenient, and then going to the stores when that makes sense to them. Uh, The stickiness aspect is a good question to explore. I think what's going on here, though, is that we've formed some habits, new habits about uh, not going to the stores frequently, uh, concentrating our business in certain areas. And I don't see those habits changing just because we've gotten the vaccination. So I know earlier you said we had not reached a saturation point for grocery e-commerce adoption, but what remains the major pain point that's preventing new users from logging into one of these programs and or platforms and ordering their groceries online? Oh, I I think the uh, main stumbling block is whether the e-commerce broadly offered by grocery uh, can keep up with the expectation of consumers. I mean, we have some very big stocking horses out there who continue to advance with improved uh, user experience, uh, improved delivery, uh, some are reducing costs. So it's really a question of whether the breadth of, oper- of, breadth of systems that people are using today uh, can keep up with the customer expectation uh, and not disappoint. Uh, or deflect that business into maybe the pure play business uh, from Amazon or, or something like that. 
and certainly Amazon is making a big move uh, in these days uh, in that direction as well. Thank you, Bill, and I really appreciate your insight on this topic. And I do want to take a moment to let Food Institute podcast listeners know that at BrickMeetsClick.com, you can get access to this report and take a look every month at grocery e-commerce sales statistics that Brick Meets Click collects and opines over. So it's definitely an opportunity uh, to learn a little bit more about the grocery e-commerce market and you know get a regular update every month. But like I said at the beginning of the episode, I don't want to just look to the past. I'm also looking to the future, and Brick Meets Click did release a Guidance for 2021 report recently. And in that report, it details how traditional grocers are facing headwinds from superstores, online competition, dollar stores, and other avenues where people are getting their food. So I was hoping that you could give us a brief overview of some of these headwinds that traditional grocers are going to face in 2021 and beyond. Well, it starts basically with the premise that the supermarket as a business model or the supermarket as, a, as an offering to the, to the consumer is, uh, is a couple generations old. Uh, most supermarket companies uh, in operation today have been around for 75 or 80 years. So I think to a certain extent, the format of the supermarket has uh, hasn't run out of steam, uh, but it's losing steam. And the new competitors are coming up with narrower, sharper, uh, maybe more carefully targeted uh, offers to different segments. So what we're arguing in the report is that uh, supermarkets have to start now to think about significant ways to differentiate themselves in the future versus what they've done today. Inline activity or online activity is fundamentally the blocking and tackling today. And we're arguing that we have to go beyond blocking and tackling and actually significantly help customers solve recurring problems related to either the preparation or the purchase uh, of groceries. So with that in mind, could you give a broad line answer for what kind of transformation is needed in this new era of grocery retail? Well, let's, let's start with what may be the core issue. And that is, uh, ironically, uh, many supermarkets today are too big and overskewed but at the same time, don't have enough variety to satisfy the sort of increasingly divergent demand of customers around those stores. So uh, a store being a little too large, overskewed, but not having all the items is a bit of a dilemma, Chris. And so what we're arguing is that there are services that a supermarket can provide to help people navigate, to help consumers navigate through this uh, expanded set of food choices and come out at the other end with a more uh, satisfactory solution and a solution that basically is less stressful, less pressure on them. I mean, one of the questions that persists, and it's interesting, um, that question is what what's for dinner tonight? And if a person has the responsibility for answering it, 
That's a really important question that brings with it a fair amount of pressure and tension. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're just getting ready to sit down and, and be served by that person, you're not thinking that's too much of an issue. So we'd like to help people do a better job of uh, being comfortable and being as good as they can be in getting the meals on the table that they feel are important for their families and uh, they'll feel good about when they serve them. One aspect of the report really focused on the value proposition for customers and showcasing how value really influences customer purchasing decisions at the grocery store. So I was wondering if you could provide a little insight into this aspect of the report. Well, I think one of the key areas of value is we historically have sold uh, our products on sale by item. And no one consumes or very few people consume products, food products by item. They consume them as part of a meal, multi-item meal. So one of the areas of value creation is how, how do supermarkets take their sale and promotional prices, which are usually very aggressive and certainly attractive to a large swath of households, and help those households see which of those deal items will translate to the lowest cost, greatest value for money meals for their household. And particularly in this post-pandemic period or moving into the post-pandemic period where money's not, money is very important. It's in short supply in a lot of households. That service alone, uh, helping people bridge from deals for items to meals that are great value for money is a significant opportunity. So I know the report wasn't just about value creation. So I was hoping that you could also talk about the two other aspects that the report covers. One of them is uh, the whole notion of uh, replenishment. Uh, you know, it's embarrassing, it's awkward, it's time consuming. Uh, if for whatever set of reasons, a household is planning a meal and then realizes that an essential ele that element of that meal isn't in the pantry or refrigerator. Uh, so we think a second area of value ad ad addition that supermarkets can provide is actually helping, in a sense, auto-replenish the more commonly used, more popular items in a household and taking the pressure off the meal planning individual for that inventory management. I mean, in many instances, households buy up to 50% of the same items each time they go shopping. So the replenishment process is not a hard one, but it does require discipline. So that's a second area of value creation. And then a third area, and I know this is one that the Food Institute has spent a lot of time on recently, is the whole question of what items are actually better for the individuals in the household. Uh, so we're talking here about personalization and health. Uh, so when you put together a high value meal that's personalized and healthier, and that you're really feeling quite comfortable about replenishing because the inventory is right there when you need it, those three things take a lot of pressure off the person responsible for feeding the household and create, I think, a, a whole different positive dependence uh, on a store that I think is stronger and stickier 
than the value proposition that we have today in most instances. So I believe in the report you actually called it the perpetual pantry, which is a term I really, really like. Um, but I guess retailers might be wondering, you know, this replenishment tactic, is it going to take away from impulse buys once a customer gets inside the store? Well, and, and this is, I think, a very good question. And it's the reason we put the three sources of new value creation together. Um, the replenishment process is fairly straightforward, as you point out. And it's basically going to focus on items that people are buying routinely. But the other two areas open up all sorts of possibilities for exposing a household to uh, new choices, uh, impulse purchases. And I guess it really depends on exactly how you de define impulse purchase. But let's just say a new choice, something you might not otherwise have put in your food repertoire. Uh, when we're talking about building a sort of value meal plan, which was the first thing we discussed, or when we start talking about items that are healthier for you or healthier for me specific members of the families for individual reasons, those are both areas where there's a plus opportunity for incremental sales. I mean, one of the things that's always intrigued me is if I see an item that I know has a benefit, let's just say a health benefit, I, I want that item. I'm not thinking about price. So you're going to sell items and you're going to sell them with much less price uh, sensitivity uh, in that health, personalized health arena. And I think similarly, you're going to get some, a lot more variety potential as you take a look at the uh, deals for the week and then consider what additional meals can be made so that you make full use of the products that are bought on deal. So I, I think it's really just a question of drilling down, getting closer, and, uh, uh, and in many respects, using that intimate knowledge or that projection of intimate knowledge to sell a broader and perhaps higher value mix of products. So in calls that we had before this recording session today, Bill, you brought up the case for experiential retail in the grocery sphere. So I was hoping that you could maybe give us one example of a way that a grocery company could kind of go beyond their traditional marketing efforts and finding ways to either obtain new customers or retain existing ones. Uh, one of them is to mix uh, social media uh, and entertainment into the uh, into the purchase process. So there there are online successes in other areas around the world where folks are basically brought onto the platform. And they're entertaining themselves with games or watching live streaming, and they're kind of browsing products as they go. So they're not really there to shop, but they are buying. And that happens when you bring them on board, get them on your platform, entertain them, and then kind of expose them to new opportunities. Now, there's also another way to get to that impulse you were, we're talking about. So I, I think that's uh, one way in which um, we can uh, introduce that, that experience. 
So I just have one last question about the report, Bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression after reading it was that it's not imperative that grocers start making these changes this year, but that they really should start thinking about the changes they need to make. So I know that you would probably caution against running into this head first, but it really seems like it might be a time to start planning ahead, considering, you know, all of the different headwinds that grocery companies are going to have to contend with over the next couple of years. Yes, the the, uh, the caution we have here is you don't necessarily need to go out and look to buy a silver bullet at this point, because that silver bullet is probably not available. Uh, so it is time, however, to concentrate on planning. And uh, what the report really reflects is a feeling that uh, retailers have an opportunity, in fact, a need to focus more intently on the needs of their customers and be better marketers of their service and offering than they are today. Uh, Retailers are phenomenal merchants. They do a great job in terms of putting products together and exciting folks with the circular or the ads, but the imagery, the stories, the focus on who they really uh, are intending to serve and, and then the thought about what the, that intended audience needs or would like uh, is a good part of that planning. And we feel that if they start now in thinking that through with market research and careful thought, they can then buy the capabilities to enable them to implement those plans uh, rather than just rushing out and trying something new. So that brings us to the end of today's conversation. Bill, I know I already plugged it at the beginning of the episode, but where can our listeners go to learn more about Brick Meets Click and the reports that we were talking about today? Well, I think that they go directly to our website, which is uh, brickmeetsclick.com. Uh, and uh, you'll find the uh, the newest numbers right there on the homepage. And we up them, update them every 30 days with a little bit of a narrative. Uh, and then the report itself, uh, the guidance for 2021, uh, is available at no charge uh, under our paper section. You can just down, uh, register and download and off you go. So I know I said it earlier in the episode, but I do want to reiterate how important Brick Meets Click has been for the Food Institute. And I really want to thank Bill again for his time today. Uh, Bill was our first guest on the podcast, so we always really like having him back over here. Chris, you're very welcome, and thank you very much for the comments. Uh, We enjoy working with the Food Institute. We think you guys are doing a great job, and uh, uh, for us, it's uh, a very positive relationship as well. So that just about does it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. So remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.